welcome to episode number 59 of the Plant Powered Radio podcast series. On today's show from Toronto, Ontario, Anita Krines. Anita Krines is formerly a professor of political studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, but she's better known as the co-founder of Toronto Pig Save, an organization that bears witness to animals in their final moments as they approach slaughterhouses. Since 2010, the Animal Save movement has become a global phenomenon with a thousand chapters in many different countries and including uh, now Climate Save, Youth Climate Save and health save chapters in addition to the animal save. The collective mission of the global animal save movement is to spread the idea that we all have a moral duty to bear witness, end animal agriculture, and reforest the earth. In 2019, Anita was named one of Toronto's most inspirational women, and she's here today to tell us about the Climate Save Movement's new plant-based treaty project. Thank you so much for being here today, Anita. Great pleasure, Janine. Thanks for having us. Oh, you're kind of a hero in our world, that's for sure. I really appreciate you taking the time. And so I always like to hear people's vegan story. How did that happen for you? When I was an undergraduate, I saw a poster for the Animals film narrated by Julie Christie. And so I went to the basement library at the University of Toronto and saw the film. And I was an omnivore at the time. And uh, I had nightmares for three days. Uh, and then I became a vegetarian and an animal activist in the 90s. But then it took me to 2004, five. By then I had my PhD. I was teaching at Queen's University. And there was a student group so that was influenced by Gary Francione. And they called me out. Like I was working with them. I was distributing hundreds of copies of Peaceable Kingdom. And they said I was a hypocrite. And then I started to learn about the dairy industry. I, I was quite ignorant and the egg industry. And then I went vegan. So you became a, an activist when you were vegetarian. Oh, yeah. I was the president of the University of Toronto Students for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I was working on a campaign to get data on the number of animals used in experiments at the University of Toronto. And there were about 50,000 vertebrate animals and thousands of invertebrate animals killed each year. So it was just horrific. I did a whole campaign where they wouldn't give me the information. Then I went to the ombudsperson still wouldn't give me the information, then I CC'd the press, and then eventually they released that information. Yeah, it's all very hush-hush, isn't it? I've heard there's animal experimentation at the University of Victoria here. It's really hard to get any information about it. So many different ways we can work to try to liberate the animals, and you ended up somehow, now you're sort of the head representative for the SAVE movement, and that came from a dog walk one day. So were you vegan at this point? Yeah, so Toronto Pig Safe started in 2010 with the adoption of Mr. Bean, a beagle whippet mix. He was adopted from Project Jesse of the Animal Alliance of Canada. Just a wonderful dog. I lived in this area, downtown Toronto, for four years prior, and I was aware of quality meat packers, quote unquote, pig slaughterhouse. And I could see the chimney in the distance when I took the streetcar and I said, somebody should do something about it. And I, I even went to the extent of calling a group in Hamilton that was really active and said, oh, could you do a protest? And then I, I was starting to make plans to like, oh, maybe leaflet, forgot about it, went on with my life. And then four years later, adopted Mr. Bean for my mom. Then I would take walks early in the morning. And that was the first time I saw transport trucks with pigs downtown Toronto like we'd take walks 7 a.m I would see eight nine transport trucks in rush hour traffic I saw the pigs looking up their beautiful sweet faces and they were like 
scared or worried. And that's when it started. I said, okay, got to do something. I'd been reading books on Leo Tolstoy, Gandhi, Ramakrishna. And whenever there was an injustice in their community, they just took action. And so that was the idea of like, it wasn't passing the buck anymore like I had done for four years. It was like, you know, seeing the pigs, even at a distance, but seeing them, that was like, that was it. I said, okay, got to do something. I tried to come up with a name. It's like, you know, closed slaughterhouses and things like that. And then my friend said, no, you got to come up with like a positive name that's inviting. And she said, Toronto Pig Safe. I go, yeah, that's a good name. So we just, you know, we went with Toronto Pig Safe. And then for half a year, we were trying to build the base and uh, get footage. So we would sneak along the railway lines with many, many activists, wonderful activists, took footage of the pen area and also of the kill floor. There was a window that was open on the kill floor that showed the gas chamber. And then we started doing three vigils a week, every week, even during the holidays, Christmas holidays, other holidays, to build a movement. That started in July 2011. Then a few years later, that slaughterhouse closed. And then we went to Fearman's in Burlington, which is 40 minutes from Toronto. And groups started popping up elsewhere. We started doing vigils at the cow slaughterhouse in Toronto and the chicken slaughterhouse in Toronto. So yeah, and it spread. That's so great. What, what a wonderful thing. And the power of bearing witness. I think that has a really long tradition in the resistance movement generally. I think the Quakers, that's one of their things is to bear witness inside the prisons. They used to do that back in England and when uh, just deplorable conditions. And, and there's a real power in that, isn't there? I don't think people appreciate how powerful that can be. It's transformative. Animal rights was something that was really special to me and important to me. You know, when I was teaching at the university, I incorporated it in every course. There was something that it always like, it was so central to me because the animals are such underdogs. They're so violated. They're so oppressed. They're so innocent. And so it always was important to me. But when I started bearing witness, like went right up to the truck, looked at the pigs in the eyes, it's completely transformative. It like made fighting for animal rights the number one priority in my life. And people have experienced that with bearing witness in the civil rights movement or if it's worker rights or protests against nuclear testing. If you bear witness firsthand, uh, it's different from watching a movie because you're there face to face. There's accountability. They become part of your life. The animals that are victims, their story becomes part of your story. It changes your brain structure in a way. The empathy is so humongous and, uh, that's why we would say once we started bearing witness, like if everybody saw this, this would stop. If everybody saw this, you know, they wouldn't contribute to this evil, you know, this violence, this killing, this torture. So we always said everyone has a moral duty to bear witness because we knew the power of it. Greenpeace started in Vancouver with Don't Make a Wave in the late 60s. And they were protesting nuclear testing in Apchipka in Alaska. And then they, you know, and then in the Pacific and you know, when you bear witness to something as evil as nuclear weapons or bombing or things like that, you know, it's, it's transformative. And then they did that for the seal hunt and for whaling. And uh, Sea Shepherd Society does that. And I just believe everyone should do it. We have a moral responsibility to not look away. And we were very inspired by Leo Tolstoy. He uh, was an ethical vegetarian, the Russian writer for War and Peace and Anna Karenina. But he wrote like 600 books and articles and became an ethical vegetarian in the 1880s, he said what was the perfect definition of bearing witness in my mind. He said, when the suffering of another creature causes you to feel pain, don't succumb to the initial desire to flee from the suffering one, but on the contrary, come closer, as close as you can to him and try to help him. 
that idea of coming as close as you can and trying to help is just the core of what bearing witness is. You know, we're aware that most of the time we're just doing partial bearing witness, like we're coming somewhat close as, you know, as close as we can. And, you know, we're trying to help. In some cases, we do rescue animals, but a partial bearing witness is better than looking away. The problem is so big, you know, almost a billion land animals killed in Canada a year, and 10 billion in the US, and more than 70 billion land animals in the world each year, and over 2 trillion fish and marine species. There are lots of opportunities to bear witness, and it may seem overwhelming, but just by being there, it becomes real. Like you say, okay, one truck has 200 pigs. Okay, there are 50 trucks going to Fearman's, the biggest pig slaughterhouse in Ontario. That's 10,000 pigs killed a day. It's like a village. But it puts it in perspective and say, oh, in a year, that is one to two million. Those big numbers become real. So in Canada, oh, we kill 30 million pigs a year. Well, just by bearing witness at an all-day vigil, you see the 50 trucks and you go, oh, this is how it happens. It's not abstract. And the problem with these things being abstract is people just look away or they think, oh, we can't do anything. It's not true. We have so much power to make a difference, to help people do the right thing, to bear witness, to go vegan and to become activists. And, and for those pigs, it must really feel wonderful that in their final moments, you've given them some love and then eventually you started giving them some water, but it must also be really tragic knowing what they're heading into. Yeah, I think it's like, they have companionship with each other. Like that's what we've seen in the trucks. Like they help each other. If an animal's injured, they take care of each other. They have their friendship. But in terms of humans, they haven't met very many kind humans in their life or, you know, humans that look them in the eye with kindness and love and compassion. And so why it's important because we're there, we're saying, we're sorry, we love you. We're trying and we're going to share your story. We're going to try to help you and other pigs coming later that they don't have to suffer the fate that you're suffering. We want to make sure that you don't die in vain. Nobody wants to die in vain. Everyone wants justice. And, and I find pigs and other animals are very ethical and that we have a lot to learn from them. And remembering that each of those, however many millions and billions, each one of them has their own personality. Any of us that's had a companion animal in our lives, we know every single one of us, we're all individuals. And can you just briefly describe what kind of a death these creatures are facing? So regardless, we, I think we can assume that all of these pigs in this transport truck have come from maybe different circumstances. Maybe some of them lived better lives than others, but they're all heading into the same slaughterhouse. And can you just tell us what happens inside of there with the gas chambers? First of all, the vast majority, like more than 95%, come from horrible factory farms where the mother pig is basically raped uh, and, and impregnated repeatedly, like six months. They're so... Uh, intensively abused that they go to slaughter at three to four years. But if they're at a sanctuary like the pig preserve, they could live 16 years, 20 years. What we find with these farmed animals, they're so exploited and abused that they go to an early death, whether it's a mother cow going four or five years instead of living her 20, 30 years, whether it's a hen being quote unquote spent after a couple of years instead of living 10 years, pigs, you know, living longer lives. The poor piglets are taken away from the mother. You know, the mother can't even turn around or move in a farrowing crate. It's unimaginable. That's one of the worst nightmares people have is they don't want to be confined where you can't even turn around. So it's like a nightmare from day one. Then they become feeder pigs and they're fattened. And within four to six months, they get electrically prodded onto a, 
a transport truck and it's the first time they see daylight because they've been raised in a dirty, dark warehouse that looks like a concentration camp. And then they're electrically prodded, which is an instrument of torture onto a truck. They're screaming, you know, in the heat, they suffer so much. Their uh, heart is the size of our fist, but they have such a big body because they've been artificially fattened with no exercise. In the summer, a lot of them die of heart attacks and heat stroke. And then they're on this journey with no water and food for 35 hours for pigs, but I think it's been lowered slightly with the new regulations. But, you know, one hour is enough to feel heat stroke for if we're out there in heat. And then they're violently prodded into the slaughterhouse. You know, and if it's hot, they're prodded even more mercilessly because they can, you know, they're already injured and sick. And then they're even more prodded, even tortured more. Then they go into the slaughterhouse pen where thousands of pigs are there. And then they hear the screaming. They hear the screamings of the pigs being electrically prodded to the gas chamber. And so it's like an asylum there. So all day they're hearing this screaming until it's their turn. And then they're separated from the pigs that they were with. And then there's like a single file. They go into this single file where there's men, usually men, spaced out and then electrically prod them. So they race towards the gas chamber. So the gas chamber is made by Butina, a company in Denmark. They make 90% of the gas chambers in the world. And then they are, they're lowered and poisoned by carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is heavier than air. Pigs are lowered down a few floors. And so they're jumping on each other, trying to put their snouts out, trying to breathe. They're screaming. And eventually that stuns them because they don't want to kill them. They want to stun them so that then they're shackled upside down. Then their throats are slit. So they want them alive so the part can pump out the blood. And then um, some of them wake up. Even the industry admits this, like a few percent wake up and then they're thrown to a scalding tank to remove their hair. And some of them are alive when swimming, trying to swim out. So it's just like a, it's just like a, it is uh, what humans do is it's, it's quite, quite unforgivable. It's quite evil. You know, when you think of like how people prepared for war or genocide, what we're doing for animals, it's, it's all, it's thought out. It's mathematical. It's all calculated. And it's, it's truly you know, there, there are no words for it. And I, I think people just aren't even aware. This is happening in their backyard. I live in Toronto. I live five minutes away from what used to be the pig slaughterhouse. And this was happening there. And I didn't know. And I was a vegan. I was an animal activist. I only found out when I started bearing witness. That means I was ignorant for all those years that I was vegan. That's why it's important to bear witness because we don't even know what's going on until you start paying attention and stop looking away and stop saying, oh, somebody else should do something. If this was happening to you, when you're screaming for help and you're saying, please help me, you don't want humans looking the other way, you know, and saying there's more important things. What is more important than preventing murder and torture and exploitation in your own backyard and around the world? But in your backyard, it's happening right where you live. In Toronto, we still have a cow slaughterhouse where there's torture, like uh, Linda McQuaig, a famous journalist wrote in the Toronto Star the kind of torture that was happening because there there's a kosher halal slaughterhouse and they're split without any studying. So there's even more torture there. At the end of the day, it's all horrific and bad and wrong, you know, and we need to shut down all slaughterhouses. Who are the people working in these slaughterhouses? I think we can have a little bit of sympathy for the idea that we live in a world where this is a job that's available to people who maybe can't get jobs elsewhere. Do you ever have a chance to chat with some of the workers? 
Yeah, very much. The story sort of has repeated itself for centuries and even millennia. So there's a book called Utopia, where the world's a utopia, but there's still slaves and the slaves slaughter animals. And then Upton St. Clair wrote The Jungle. And that was at the turn of the 20th century. And it was immigrants from Eastern Europe and African-Americans. And now currently, if you go to the United States, a lot of, you know, uh, Latin American people or people from the Middle East. And, and there's so many methods that these industry use to trap people in this. It's their way of getting citizenship, you know, go to war for us or, you know, work in the slaughterhouse. Like it's really extremely unethical and exploitative. And the same is true in Canada, like in Alberta. In a lot of cases, it's programs, you know, where people are able to get into Canada to work at slaughterhouses. Wow. So it's incredibly unethical. At what point did you start giving water to the pigs? It took a while. It took a maybe, I don't know, a year, year and a half. So there was an activist, Paul, who said, oh, let's give them fruit. So he suggested it. And once he brought fruit to the cow slaughterhouse, and they're so terrified that rarely have we been successful in giving an apple or some water to cows. They're just so petrified. Twyla Francois, you know, said you should give them like you should give have a hose there and spray the whole truck. And we were thinking, oh, well, what are the legal ramifications? Like, so at, at first we were afraid. And then we just started doing it once. And then once you do it and you say like, oh, this is so obviously the right thing to do. And then everybody just does it. So then we just started doing it. Even the police would come sometimes and you can't do that. We're going, oh, well, we'll just look at them. They're so thirsty and we're giving water. So like once we started, we overcame that fear. So we went through this process of once it was so obviously the right thing to do that we did it. And That's what ended you up in the courtroom, isn't it? Was the water component? Yeah. Yeah, because they knew how powerful it was to show the world how thirsty these pigs were. What's the difference between a dog and a pig? They knew. So the slaughterhouse wanted to stop that. They wanted to make an example of me, but you know, other people were giving water too, just, just to try to shut us down. But then I had two very amazing lawyers, vegan lawyers, uh, Gary Grill and James. Uh, they turned it around. It was a year and a half trial, became known as the pig trial. And they put animal agriculture on trial and they called all these witnesses like a veterinarian, a scientist, Dr. Lauren Marino specializing in pig sentience, a doctor who would talk about the health benefits of plant-based diet, and an environmentalist, Dr. Tony Weiss from University of Western Ontario. So they all they all testified and um, yeah, it became a big story worldwide because it was so outrageous to charge someone for compassion. So we use the hashtag, compassion is not a crime. Now we've got these ag gag laws and legislations coming in across the country. Do you think that's a different way that the, the industry has responded to all our efforts? Yeah, there's an ag gag bill in Ontario that outlawed giving water to pigs. Constitutionality of that bill is being challenged by an amazing group of lawyers at Animal Justice. We need to honor Regan Russell, who was part of the SAVE movement. And I've heard that there is some ongoing investigation into her death as she was bearing witness. Is there anything yeah. you can tell us? Yeah. So Regan Russell, she came to some of our Toronto Pig Safe vigils, but they were on weekdays. So she often went to stop the trucks and she would go to the Sunday vigils because Sunday was easier for her because she's looking after her aged mother and father. But she came to some of our vigils weekdays and she came on a Friday the day after the ag-gag bill was passed in Ontario. 
and she was protesting it. Do you know the irony of that? Like she was planning to do something more to fight this bill. So she told Lori Crunin, her good friend, that she was willing to get arrested with her 90-year-old father to fight this bill. So the day after the bill passed, she was at an emergency vigil. It was a hot day. Temperatures in their high 20s. It was a vigil to protest the ag ag bill. So it was a Friday. And the last truck, uh, it was owned by Brussels, a co- trucking company. The driver was sitting in the outer lane for minutes and the vigil was over. And then there was a green light. She had the right of way. And he just put his foot on the pedal and ran over her. She was a beautiful soul, such a good heart. She would always try to bring people together, try to heal. She was very positive. She was very kind. Like for new activists, she would give them a ride. She would bring them, you know, vegan brownies, people she'd just met. Like she was incredibly kind. And she was involved in so many different social movements. And it's been more than a year. And her husband and family are really upset because over a year and there was nothing happening. And then then the first court appearance was supposed to be a few weeks ago, but then the judge got ill. Now the next one is going to be the where it actually the trial starts is November 1st, but she was killed in uh, late June of 2020. And the charges were just like careless driving, which is a highway traffic offense. And it wasn't a criminal code of Canada violation. And yet most cases where people are uh, run over, it's a criminal code offense. And especially should be true for a professional driver. If you are a transport truck driver, you have higher requirements in terms of safety. And for that to happen under the circumstances of him sitting in the outer lane for so long, and her having the right of way, mm. they had video testimony, which they did not share with the family. At Fearman's Pig House, they had a video pointing there. So they had video evidence, but they didn't share it with the family or the public. You know, they didn't even take his cell phone after this. Imagine it was happening to anyone else. They would take the cell phone. Was the guy texting when this was happening? What was he mm. texting before? Right. Like, he didn't even take a breathalyzer. It was like unbelievable it was like a different justice system mm. or animal egg. Like it was, it's truly reprehensible. But, you know, the world responded. Joaquin Phoenix came to the site where she was killed. And that would have meant a lot to Regan because Regan told her best friend when Joaquin Phoenix was speaking at the Academy Awards, not about himself or his movie, The Joker. He was speaking about mother cows and how important it is to drink plant-based milks instead of exploiting the dairy cows. Uh, she she called her friend and she was speaking so fast she couldn't understand what she was saying. She was so excited. You know, she was so happy what what Joaquin Phoenix did, and you know to know that he then came to the site where she was killed. You know she was smiling in heaven, and um, there were protests all over the world for her, and so many people who were not active but cared about animal rights became active for her. So she lives on in so many people. I, I can't even begin to tell you what a difference she's made to the strength of the movement. I've heard about animal sanctuaries named after her and animals named after her. And yeah, There's so wow. many rescues in her name. People right. went, did special rescues in her name all over the world. Wow. Like lambs, chickens, pigs. Yeah, all over the world. People asked for animals just for her, like in Portugal, Spain, Italy, like uh, all over Mexico, like rescues for in her name that were in addition, something just for her. They went, they just were determined to do rescues for her. Wow. We'll have to keep an eye out for news of the trial then and hope there's some justice there. So the Animal Save Movement has now added components. In addition to the animal component, there's the climate, 
the youth climate and the health save movements. This is very exciting. I became a vegetarian originally for environmental purposes, so that's always very near and dear to my heart. So the plant-based treaty is very exciting. And was that your idea, Anita? When it happened in late April, Janelle, who is Genesis Butler's mother, Genesis Butler is an African-American youth, I think she's 14 now, who started Youth Climate Safe. Her mother, Janelle, and Nicola Harris, who's our communications director, and I went on a call with Sephora Berman. Can you give us advice on how to put animal agriculture on the agenda? And I invited two powerhouses like, you know, Nicola Harris, who is, uh, was with Shaq in England, and now she's with, that's Stop Hunting and Animal Cruelty. And now she's with Animal Safe Movement as Director of Communications, along with James O'Toole. And she's brilliant. She's one of the best campaigners I know on the planet. And so I, I wanted her to be there. And then I invited Janelle. Janelle is related to Cesar, Cesar Chavez, uh, who started the United Farm Workers and was a vegan and, and you know, his Genesis mother. And so I wanted them to be there with support. And so she showed us the fossilfueltreaty.org because she chairs that. And it's signed by over 100 Nobel laureates. It's uh, the Dalai Lama signed it. And it's a bottom-up campaign to pressure national governments to negotiate a global fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. She said, you've got to focus on governments because they're the most powerful actors. And then after the call, we said, okay, what do we do? And then we just said, okay, let's do a plant-based treaty. So this happened in late April of 2021. So within four months, we were able to launch the plantbasedtreaty.org because we had a great model. We are constantly looking at their ideas because they're so brilliant. And um, the environmental movement has thousands of times more resources than the animal movement. So we need to learn from them and not reinvent the wheel. So yeah, we're always like learning from them and how to effectively try to shift the world to uh, you know, a sustainable, fossil fuel-free and plant-based food system. It's always been amazing to me how there's this kind of disconnect between environmentalists and vegans. It's really rare to find active environmentalists who are also vegan. And I really was grateful for Cowspiracy when that came along. I think that helped shift some people over. But but still, there's, there's this major gulf. So do you feel like the plant-based treaty is going to also help people who are active in the environmental scene realize the impact of animal agriculture? Yes, but I think it's a two-way street. So what I think is happening is the environmental movement thinks that the overwhelming percentage of greenhouse gas emissions come from fossil fuels. So they actually believe the old FAO numbers, Food and Agriculture Organization numbers, which say 14%, which is still huge. But when they think of their, they think of fossil fuels, they think, oh, it's 86% and Animal ag is just 14%. It's not that significant. We've got to focus on fossil fuels. Not true. Those are old numbers. Then on the animal rights side, you know, people think, oh, it's animal agriculture. It's, it's mainly animal agriculture. And if you're an environmentalist and you see that, you think, no, they're wrong. We're right. So like, I think there's these two camps and we have to stop that. When we did the treaty, we were working with two vegan IPCC, that's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Scientists, who were expert reviewers. So we were working with Dr. Peter Carter from British Columbia and uh, Professor Danny Harvey from the Department of Geography at the University of Toronto. And, you know, Peter Carter is very clear. He says, there are two main causes of the climate crisis, fossil fuels and animal agriculture. And he said, use the IPCC. 
you know, it's, it's not perfect, but it's getting better, better. And he says the science is getting worse and worse in terms of what's happening to the earth every day. And the IPCC says that 30, 35% of the emissions come from the food sector. So don't use old FAO numbers. A majority of the food sector emissions are from animal agriculture. That's just greenhouse gas emissions. That's not counting opportunity costs, like all the land that's being used for grazing or growing animal feed. Then, then the problem's even bigger. And then there's three greenhouse gases and they're all very significant, like carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. There are others, but in terms of those three big ones, all of them are accelerating. The emissions are going up or higher and higher. There's a methane emergency. And you know the IPCC or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with its sixth assessment report. They started coming out with reports in 1990. This is its sixth major assessment. And uh, they said that 30% of methane emissions come from animal agriculture. So wow. it's very significant. And there's a methane emergency. If we don't deal with methane in the next few years, we're likely to go over some major tipping points and end up with a climate catastrophe. So we have to address animal agriculture and fossil fuels. We need to work together. And when we did the plant-based treaty, we always say, Let's address fossil fuels and animal ag. We don't just say, you know, animal ag is the most important thing. Let's just, we don't say that. We say both. And we're trying to get Greenpeace to endorse. We haven't been able to reach them yet, but we did get Extinction Rebellion Argentina to endorse. We've got Fridays for Future in some countries to endorse. We're trying to get to Greta somehow to reach her. But we're, we got Friends of the Earth in Hull, UK to endorse. We're reaching out to environmental groups and we're going, to, we're going to reach out to indigenous groups and human rights groups, climate justice groups. This is for everyone, including animal farmers, because, uh, you know, we won't be able to breathe soon if we if we continue on the trajectory we're on. And I think a little bit of the good news is that methane doesn't stick around quite as long as these other gases. Is that right? Yeah. So methane's uh, half-life is like 10 years or 10, 12 years, whereas uh, for carbon dioxide, you know, it could have a global warming potential of 100 years. Some a certain percentage of carbon dioxide sticks around for a thousand years. Like, so it's a more long-lived gas. So, like, if we address methane, uh, we could put a real dent in stopping the emergency. There is a recognition that there is a methane emergency. So, a week before that IPCC report came out, the Guardian published a big article about the methane emergency, and uh, President. Biden in the U.S. is talking about a methane agreement, but it's very weak. I've sort of lost faith in these big organizations. I like that the plant-based treaty is being adopted by city governments and communities. I, I feel that's really where our power is. We got to get on this fast. I first heard about this. I was in college in uh, 1989, 88, and it was an ecology professor who had just been away at a science seminar with what he described as white coat scientists. So not just hippie, earth-loving tree huggers. He said they, they were credentialed and they told him and everybody there that we had 30 years to get a grip on the environmental problems that they were seeing at that time, which included global warming greenhouse gases those were the words that we that were being uh, bandied about at that time and uh, if we didn't do something within 30 years we probably would see some significant and unalterable changes by 
50 years. So that was 89. So here we are 30 years later seeing that play out, that we're definitely seeing big changes now and we haven't really gotten a grip on anything in that time. So thank you for all that you're doing. And now who is the COP26? Great, great question. And you mentioned 1989. Could it have been 1988 as well? When you were yeah, around in there. There was a Toronto conference called Changing Atmosphere, which I attended. I was an oh. undergrad. I attended. And uh, that was just before the creation of the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, created to do assessments on the science, looking at peer-reviewed articles around the world. It's the most prestigious large-scale assessment of science. So the IPCC set up three working groups. The first is on science, second is on impacts, and third is on policy responses. In their first report, they predicted an increase in temperature of one degree Celsius by 2025. So guess what? It's 2021. We're already past one degree Celsius. We're at 1.1 degree Celsius warming. So that gives you some background. So there's the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it has those three working groups, and it comes up with assessment reports. And then they said, okay, let's set up a framework convention on climate change. And that was finally passed in 1992 at the Rio de Janeiro Earth Summit. Out of that convention came the Conference of the Parties. Their job is they are to promote the effective implementation of the climate convention. And so they're the supreme body of the convention established under Article 6, 7, sorry, Article 7. So that the United Nations established that? Well, yeah, the world governments agreed and signed the framework convention on climate change at the Earth Summit. But it was, yeah, the United Nations was, you know, the United Nations Environment Program the World Meteorological Organization, they were all part of setting this up as well as the, they helped set up the IPCC. But it's uh, it's intergovernmental. So it's like all these governments coming together and agreeing. When you look at the IPCC, it isn't so much government bureaucrats because they're not the big experts. A lot of governments recruit professors. As I mentioned, like Professor Danny Harvey at the Department of Geography at the University of Toronto, he was part of the IPCC. Dr. Peter Carter's part of it. So it's a very esteemed you know, group, but, but, you know, it has some limitations, like I said, you know, it is vulnerable to political interference and also quote unquote conservative defined as like underestimating the danger. Mm. So, like, for example, uh, the most prominent climate scientist in the world is James Hansen. And he wrote a book called Storms of My Grandchildren. And he, he was the head of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies. He's really esteemed. He was the one that blew the whistle in 1988 in front of uh, Senate hearing, and Al Gore features him in his film, An Inconvenient Truth. He even gets arrested for standing up for climate. But he says the IPCC is conservative because they don't look enough at positive feedbacks. So they, there's too much linearity assumed, like, oh, things are getting worse in a linear way. You know, for example, say a lot of methane is released from the permafrost in northern Canada and Russia. And then suddenly the methane concentration in the atmosphere is so much higher that, you know, it's not a linear process of increasing temperature. You know, there are these dangers and they're so hard to predict because it's such a complex system. But James Hansen has a chapter in the book called the Venus syndrome. Venus is burning hot, boiling, you know, several hundred degrees Celsius because their atmosphere is concentrated with greenhouse gases. And yep. um, there's a danger that that could happen to us. So like climate chaos, 
is a huge threat like global nuclear war it could it could lead to extinction yeah we have lots of different ways to get to extinction it seems like these days but we do have power we have power to become vegan we have power to work for divestment the fossil fuel environmentalists have done great work getting universities to divest from investing in fossil fuel companies there seems to be extra barriers for trying to shift people away from eating animals though it's such an emotional attachment for people personally and then also you know you mentioned that governments sort of have to get the final say on these and governments we know are invested in propping up animal agriculture so there's a financial investment right to me that seems a conflict of interest i think in the fossil fuel industry it's the same thing there's uh, incredible subsidies that are going into True popping up the fossil fuel industry. And so that's the challenge we have is ending subsidies to destructive fossil fuels and animal agriculture and shifting subsidies to promote solutions. You know, in the treaty, we have three demands. Don't make it worse. So no new deforestation for animal agriculture, no new slaughterhouses, no new animal farms. And then the second one is redirect subsidies, taxes, public information campaigns, all the tools you have so that they're promoting the solution. And then the third demand is a restore, uh, you know, reforce the earth. So there are three R's, relinquish, don't make the problem worse, and when you redirect, uh, restore. Wonderful. And so how can people get involved in helping you promote the plant-based treaty? Because you want it at all levels of government and all over the world. How can people get involved with that? I think uh, we'd love your help. Uh, the first thing you could do is just go to the homepage of the uh, uh, plantbasedtreaty.org and you can endorse as an individual group business or city and uh, then we have a take action page where you could there's so many actions you can take part in you can uh, write to your counselors and mayor just there's an, a letter that goes uh, you know based on your postal code it, it will go directly to your mayor and city counselors and you can ask them to the city where you live to endorse the treaty then we have like four letters, like youth letter, interfaith letter, scientist letter, politician letter. If you can help us, you know, gather signatures, if you are part of a faith group, or uh, if you're a youth, you know, 25 years or younger, uh, up to 18 to 25, basically, um, you know, you can sign that letter to COP, the Conference of the Parties 26. That's the 26th meeting of the Conference of the Parties. Wow. Negotiate the Framework Convention on Climate Change. And, uh, ask them to you know uh, negotiate a global plant-based treaty um you can go to fossilfieldtreaty.org and uh please you know endorse that treaty and be part of that uh, animal save moon has endorsed that plant-based treaty has endorsed that treaty i just think we all need to work together um and then we have like uh on the campaign hub we have a lot of tools there you could there's tools on like how to lobby your politicians how to write a letter to the editor uh, there's a draft resolution for cities to endorse the treaty. So you can present that draft to your counselor and say, hey, could you introduce this motion for your for the city, for our city to you know support this treaty? Um, we have uh, things that others can do besides government. So like we have like 18 things you can do at school, uh, you know, 14 things schools can do, 16 things businesses can do. So we have all these other guides. Uh, and then you can also set your own goals in the campaign hub, like, you know, where you, we ask you like, oh, how many individuals can you ask to endorse? 
how many groups and so forth. So, you know, you can become part of it. And we have a, a Slack channel for plant-based treaty so that we can, we can communicate with each other. And then we also have uh, social media for uh, plant-based treaty. So we have like TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And uh, on our campaign hub, you can download uh, graphics, posters, banners, stickers, uh, you know, so there, yeah, so there's, there's just, there's a wealth of uh, sort of resources there. And it's, it's about acting individually, but also acting, you know, as a family, as a community, as a group. Uh, we, need, we need campaigns in different cities to pressure cities to endorse. So you can help, you know, start a, a, a city campaign. We can put you in touch with others in your city who have endorsed. So, you know, we'd love Vancouver and Toronto and LA and Mumbai and, you know, Buenos Aires, all these cities around the world to endorse this treaty. This month we're focusing on Glasgow. So we have a petition asking Glasgow councillors and the mayor to endorse because that's where COP26 is held, being held this year. So we think, you know, Glasgow should be a, an example and should, should, should endorse the treaty. In England, there are a lot of cities that have a lot of green councillors, like Brighton, um, Bristol, Edinburgh, like there's a lot of cities that are very progressive and concerned about the environment. So we're going to target that uh, uh, after this month. Great. What a wonderful campaign. And you get to make a whole bunch more new friends around the world. That's wonderful. Is there anything that you want to say before we go? about the movement generally or um, what you've learned along the way or just to inspire us as we go, Anita? Yeah, I, I think like, you know, the animal seed movement is just over 10 years old and we've been bearing witness, which is very traumatic uh, for us. And, uh, but the animals feel trauma day one, the day they're born, the day they die. Like it's like a life of trauma. And when you bear witness, you absorb some of that trauma, but it's just like a small part. But for us, for humans, it's like, it's so devastating. Like, oh my God, this is so traumatic. But it's bearing witness is that because that's how you change the world because you have to shine a light on what's happening to them. So I, I do think we have a moral responsibility to do it, but it comes at a cost. But social change has always come at a cost. So I, you know, so that's that. But then now we have the plant-based treaty and I feel that it offers balance because we're working on the solution. So just for our movement, I can't say how helpful it's been to focus on, you know, system change as long as well as individual change and plant-based solutions. And the thing is the climate crisis is an existential crisis. And, and so it's very important. So I think for our movement, like we're beginning to focus much more on the plant-based treaty because, uh, we feel that you know we can make more progress and uh, and and that the crisis is existential. So I think bearing witness will always be important, but in terms of our time and resources, we are now putting the majority of that towards the plant-based treaty. Mm. All right, cool. It's kind of a, a great place for activists as well. I think being vegan and um being able to when you're feeling strong enough to go bear witness go do that and then when you'd want to help send some letters to your city council you can do it from that angle right so it's nice personally to be able to balance that out really great talking to you and thank you for you know uh raising awareness of the and bringing bringing movements together and it's great that you you started as an environmentalist because i i, I did as well so i i can understand your route I, that's where i started in the 90s and 
Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. It's really great to meet you, Anita. And, um, you know, maybe we can check in with you another few months and you'll have some good news for us after COP26. We have a lot of local people there. So many things happening, like a light show and a, a plant-based treaty guide to Glasgow with vegan restaurants. Uh, we have plant-based treaty dancing. We have a vigil, a cow vigil. We're going to join the march. There's a worldwide march, November 6th, Saturday, November 6th. So we're going to be there in Glasgow, but also around the world. So just encourage everyone to join those marches. And is there a place where we can uh, participate online? Is there a YouTube channel or something where people will be live broadcasting? First of all, like on our website, plantbasedtreaty.org, we have a take action page and there you'll see the COP, there's a COP page. But we'll definitely be live streaming on Facebook, on YouTube. Instagram, like, yeah, we'll, we'll be on all the social media. And we have press releases coming out all the time. Uh, and that's on our website as well under media, what people are saying and press releases. So yeah. Awesome. Thanks again, Anita. Take care of yourself, eh? Thanks. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Good to see you. And yeah, such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you. You too, truly. Our guest today was Anita Kreins, co-founder of the SAVE movement and the Plant-Based Treaty. You can find more Plant Powered Radio by visiting us on YouTube and by subscribing to this podcast for regular updates. Please continue to be safe and free and considerate towards all species. And thanks so much for listening. encircles the earth for all beings everywhere.